But so this area, just everywhere? Just everywhere, like, it doesn't matter what area you were in. We're in King's Cross right now in central London. But in 1993, you could not escape jungle. It was everywhere. It was blasting out of the cars. It was in people's headphones. You would go into shops, you would hear it. You could not escape it. It was a phenomenon, you know? In 1993, MC Navigator heard a musical revolution unfolding on the streets of London. The sound was called Jungle, and its chopped, stuttering beats and blaring bass lines combined two decades of music from across the Black Atlantic. In the decade after 1993, this scene has produced an astonishing variety of music, from jungle and drum and bass to garage, grime and dubstep. But while these genres have fans across the world, far less is known about the community behind them. Collinet with you on Roots and Future, a special hip deep edition of Afropop Worldwide from PRI, Public Radio International. Today we go to London, where we'll speak with young grime MCs and veteran garage DJs, pirate radio managers, and genre-inventing record store owners, all to explore the black British culture at the heart of that city's dance music. Stay tuned. The history of UK dance is something of a paradox. Although led by black British musicians, the scene tended to reject any discussion of race. Firmly embedded in a web of West Indian cultural forms, it was also a child of rave, the hedonistic dance music that dominated British youth during the late 80s. In between the mainstream on one hand and a relatively isolated immigrant community on the other, black British dance styles like Jungle found a space to thrive. Simon Reynolds, author of Energy Flash, The Definitive History of Rave Culture, calls this subcultural space an urban folkways. And it became a kind of identity. You were a junglist. This was your life. People used to talk about AWOL, a way of life. Your whole life was oriented around pirate radio, around going to these raves, going to the record shops every week to see what new tracks were out, the white labels. You know, it was a world unto itself. Well, within this world, a musical community attempted to create a new way of life and to articulate a new kind of identity to go with it. The history of black British dance can seem like a dizzying array of fast-moving styles. But at every turn, the same essential questions are being asked. What does it mean for us, both black and white, to be from Britain? What does it mean for us to be from London? And how can our music define new answers to these questions? It was precious to us here in London. It was our culture. 
that that stage it was a lifestyle it was an everyday thing you woke up you lived you breathed you drunk you ate and you out and go back to sleep jungle 11, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1 It's I smiley culture with the mic in on me hana Me come to teach you right hana Not the wrong in on the cockney translation Cockney's not a language, it is only a slang And was originated, yeah, so in England The UK first gained a sizable West Indian population in the wake of the Second World War Remaining in close contact with their homes in the Caribbean, this community took to Jamaican ska and reggae during the 1960s and 70s. It was a very strong scene. There were many Jamaicans that came up to the UK from the 50s, 60s and 70s, and they all, you know, come from a reggae sound system background. And so when they came to the UK, to be able to socialize and to build up the whole community of not only Jamaicans but West Indians was to keep parties and our culture in Jamaica and in the West Indies was to have a sound system. That was MC Navigator. Reggae sound systems, huge sets of speakers manned by DJs and MCs formed the bedrock of Jamaican musical culture in the UK. However, in the mid-1980s, a new generation of black British musicians grew interested in a broader set of musical influences. Hip-hop and electro were flooding in from America, connecting with the crate-digging soul scene known as Rare Groove. PJ and Smiley, the founders of the influential label Shut Up and Dance, ran this kind of sound system while they were still in high school. The UK was very sound system crazy. So if you was anyone, thought you was, you had a sound system. We had this unique sound system where most sound systems would either play just reggae music or just soul music. But we did everything, hip hop, cutting up reggae records, super cat, playing rear groove funky stuff, playing James Brown stuff. Yeah, and we was only 16, 17, and no one was doing this, no one. According to Simon Reynolds, the mixture of these musical forms created the foundation for British dance culture. So what happened basically in Britain was the merger of mostly black sounds that were separate in their own countries of origin actually all came together in a quite unique way. It's something that could only have happened in Britain, but all the elements came from outside Britain. Some of them came from Jamaica, some of them came from the Bronx, Chicago and Detroit. They all kind of meshed together. Although these influences were percolating throughout the 80s, they needed an essential spark to set them alight. was Acid House. Starting in 1988, dance music swept the UK. 
tens of thousands raved to bass-heavy, laser-drenched music at illegal parties in warehouses and fields. Initially based on music imported from America, the scene quickly developed a style of its own. of this period was the widespread use of drugs like ecstasy and LSD. Despite their obvious dangers, these drugs allowed ravers to shed their inhibitions, breaking boundaries of class and culture that had long segmented British society. MC Navigator remembers it well. Before the rave scene, it was like these people listening to R&B and soul, these people listening to reggae, these people over here listening to pop. Yeah. When the rave scene came, all of that came together. So you'd have rich people, poor people, drug addicts, lawyers, all in the same party together. It just broke down all those barriers. Class, race, everything. It's just like, yeah, we can all do this together. Among the key players in this period were PJ and Smiley of Shut Up and Dance. Promoting themselves as rappers, they found that their records were being picked up by an unexpected audience. Put on my raving shoes and I when we was going around with our first tune, selling it to the record shops, the people that were buying the tunes were rave DJs. My younger brother used to go to raves. We didn't really go to raves. And then my younger brother said, God, they're playing your tune, they're playing your tune. In the raves, in the rave I went to, you need to come. So like, what? What do you mean they played our tune? As Shut Up and Dance expanded from a band to a label, they started to call on friends from their sound system days, tapping into a huge network of Jamaican vocal talent. Spliff Head by the Raga Twins, a record that brought these former reggae MCs to the top of the pops. Shut Up and Dance were far from the only black musicians to connect with the rave scene. MC Navigator. I didn't really like the music at first. I didn't get it. I ain't gonna lie, I didn't get it. And there was just loads of people in there and they were all like jumping around and sweating. And it was just a different vibe, you know. It went from like a dark place smoking weed and drinking brandy for my reggae days to a place that was just bright with loads of lasers. That was the first time I heard a track called V.I.E. Baseline. I heard Baseline, I was like, that's it. Already well-versed in DJing, rapping and engineering by years of sound system performance, black British musicians introduced a number of West Indian cultural practices into the very core of British dance. What is really unique to the British rave culture is the role of the MC chatting over the music live. You know, so the DJ is playing tracks, the MC is ad-libbing, and that's really something that comes out of reggae and out of dancehall culture. Another element that quickly became a staple in Britain was is the dub play. Dub play is like an exclusive track that only one sound system has. It changed a bit in Britain because it would became a track that certain DJs would have. They would play it at different parties. A producer might give dub plates of a new track in advance to various different DJs. 
Over time, the increasingly Jamaican-influenced music began to go by a new name, Jungle. This is R.I.P., a 1995 jungle track from the producer Remark. The combination of frantic double-time drums over a slow and low reggae bass line is the core of the jungle sound. Throw in a sampled R&B diva and some tough dancehall clips and you're well on your way to a classic. The basic unit of construction for a jungle track is the breakbeat, a percussion-only sample, chopped and manipulated. The most famous of these breakbeats is taken from Amen Brother, an obscure 1969 B-side from the American gospel funk group The Winstons. Let's hear what a great jungle producer can do with it. This is Renegade Snares by Omni Trio. Remember, every drum you're about to hear was contained in those five seconds of the Winstons. Producers like Rob Haig, who recorded what we just heard under the name Omni Trio, were engaged in a process of sonic experimentation designed to twist their samples and rhythms beyond all recognition. While producers kept busy in the lab, a different set of junglists were keeping the scene going on the airwaves. Shall we open the phone line? If jungle was a lifestyle, pirate radio stations provided the soundtrack. Yes, as we feel the vibes, as a man says, one shot, exterminate, Defiantly unlicensed, these stations broadcast from transmitters or aerials hidden on the roofs of the tower blocks dotting London's urban landscape. Enormous buildings holding many of the city's poorest inhabitants. The blocks tended to be poorly constructed. Grim structures, decaying concrete. But they were also perfect for transmission. To learn more about the pirates, we interviewed Isman and Brocky, two of the vital players from the early days of Cool FM, London's most famous jungle station. 
I was approached by a guy called Smurf, Little Smurf. Smurf knew I had my sound system, I'd done security. And at the time, Smurf had put a couple of little stations on and other stations were taking his aerials, smashing his stuff up. So he said, look, East, I want you to join up with me and make a station. I found a tower block, Smurf went and put a rig up there, an aerial. Yeah. And it was a Thursday night, I think. Our first transmission was on the um, 28th of November, 1991. Loads of people bought records, our friends. Mm. We just sat in there on the floor, everything, and we like everyone had a turn DJing. We got a response straight away. Navigator, an MC on Cool FM during those days, remembers what it was like. It would be in a flat like this, where we're sitting now, and you would have all the windows blacked out. They would just have two decks set up with a mixer and a microphone, and that would be it. You would be in a bedroom or an empty bedroom, wherever you'd have 10 men in there, 20 men in there, all in there, smoking weed, drinking brandy, and just, and just vibing. A crucial part of that vibe was feedback from the listeners. People would text and people would phone in and be like, yeah, you got me and Johnny Reds down in Brixton. Whole type, you got the man in from over, over Braintree in Essex. We got the Romford crew. Hold tight the Tottenham man then. Everybody would just be phoning in. According to Eastman and Brocky, pirates like Cool FM helped spread jungle far beyond the core group actually attending raves. Pirates was a major part. Cool FM was part of that. We was the one giving them the music. These kids didn't go raves. They had radios though. Had Walkmans. If they'd never heard jungle before, they heard it through the radio. All them guys used to go reggae and pop. Yeah. All of a sudden, it was a street level thing where it's, I want to be a part of that. Yeah. Their mate might go, What is it like? Well, just check the radio, listen, that's what it's about. In 1992 and 1993, jungle put down deep roots. Driven by an interlocking system of clubs, radio stations, and producers, the whole scene was exploding in popularity. Isman remembers Cool's third birthday in 1994 as a moment when he realized how much the sound had grown. We had over 3,000 people in the venue. You couldn't move and then outside there was reports of over 5,000 because we blocked off the whole of Oxford Street, Tottenham Court Road. It was an amazing thing to see. And we was like, oh my God, no. Like, we're fighting like what's going to happen, but it was like so wicked. Connecting the breakbeat science of its production with the community created by Pirate Radio, Jungle enabled a new kind of black British culture, one that was both deeply conscious of its West Indian musical traditions and fully invested in pushing those traditions into the future. Jamaican culture is sort of almost transplanted into Britain. What it's talking about fits. Britain has its own ghetto, it has its own white and black youth who are harassed by the police. I feel like they don't have a future, don't have a place. Music is one way to at least create a space for themselves. Unfortunately, Jungle's very popularity created problems for the music. Isman and Brocky. What happened with the Jungle scene? Because it was so popular, you drew the street in as well on a mass scale. A lot of people can't handle the street. People got intimidated because they just couldn't handle a certain amount of black people. So they started to say, oh, them jungle raids are too dark, too people dark. get stabbed, there's all gun guys yeah, in there, yeah. gang guys in there, can't go to them sort of raids. So but we what, knew what you meant was it's all black. But not all black, it's too black. You know, too even black. if the crowd was a quarter black, it was too black for them. Jungle, with its overt Caribbean influences, brought an increasingly assertive West Indian presence. The reggae influence was a little bit too much for certain people and our attitude, West Indian attitude, which is a little bit aggressive. We don't mean it in a bad way. It's just that we come from that culture. 
this music came from Acid House and there were people that felt like their nose was being put out of joint. You're coming, you're taking over our scene. And drum and bass was born out of, I suppose, a need for development in the scene. In 1995, as Jungle began to splinter under the weight of these tensions, some of its leading producers began to grow bored of its now-dominant reggae influences. In their place, they began advocating for a more restrained, cerebral style, which came to be known as drum and bass. While precisely chopped break beats still dominated, the roaring bass lines and hoarse-voiced MCs of Jungle were increasingly replaced by complex jazzy chords and samples that drew from 70s fusion. Listen for how the wild anti-naturalism of Jungle is replaced by a smoother polyrhythmic churn. This is Inner City Life, the opening track from drum and bass superstar Goldie's 1995 release, Timeless. Come to me in those open arms is where I want to be. Living free. I need to be. Inner City Life by Goldie. To hear more jungle and drum and bass and to read full interviews with MC Navigator, Shut Up and Dance, Eastman and Brocky, DJ Storm and more, visit afropop.org. In 
1995, at the same time that drum and bass was taking over the jungle scene, a very different sound began to develop in London's clubs and pirate radio stations. A bright, accessible style inspired by house and R&B, Garage represented a radical aesthetic turn. Abandoning the macho darkness that had overtaken jungle, Garage embraced a suave cosmopolitan sexuality. And this was a curious kind of swerve where it went less extreme. It went back to being more approachable and inviting. It was New York house music that then they sort of added jungle elements and heavier bass lines and vocal licks from dancehall and it sort of roughed it up a bit and it became jungleized house music. To find out more, we spoke to Carl Tough Enough Brown, half of the groundbreaking production duo Tough and Jan. Okay, so we're sitting in my car, my, myself and Sam from Afropop, and my name is Carl Tough Enough Brown, formerly of Tough Jam. Always interested in soul and disco, Carl became a fan of Garage, a house-derived sound being created by New York DJs like Masters at Work and Todd Edwards. By 1994, an underground scene powered by these imports had begun to develop in London. Before I got into what I was making, I was listening to what we were calling underground garage. It was like a scene that was like, it's only selected people that knew what was going on would go to these events. It was house with a touch of R&B. That's what we was defining it as. So it had that soulfulness. Maybe it had a little clip of vocal in there, a little tiny little vocal, which was repeating itself, but it had the soulful riffs to it and so on. Partnering with Matt Jam Lamont as Stuff and Jam, Carl began to create his own version of this sound. The group's big break was their chart-topping 1997 remix of the California singer-songwriter Rosie Gaines' Closer Than Close. element of a garage track is an integral part of the rhythm, as each additional layer joins to emphasize the genre's trademark swing. On its surface, garage might seem to be a step back from the intricate sound manipulation that defined jungle. But listen closer. Garage hasn't lost the rhythmic complexity of its predecessor. Instead, it swallowed it whole, putting the sonic arsenal of rave to work inside of recognizable pop songs. This is them two remix of Tina Moore's Destiny. Garage gained notoriety from the top down. 
Hearing about the chic scene, celebrities, athletes, and rock stars began to flock to clubs like the legendary Twice As Nice. Record industry attention and chart-topping hits weren't far behind. Well, the reason why it went maybe a bit wild is because it was wild. <laughs> You're taking something which is hardcore, underground, and trying to tame it. It doesn't always work out that way. It's like an untamed animal. You know, the roughness of the roughest sometimes would go to some of these places. The next thing, it explodes. It doesn't change. Replacing Jungle's rough patois with an almost aspirational elegance, the garage scene proposed a new vision for a black British identity. But it was still intimately linked to the musical traditions of that community. Garage might sound wildly different, but it was created in the same metrics of raves, radio stations and record stores, and enjoyed by many of the same fans. That generation been through rave, taking loads of pills and the whole fast, crazy, frenetic thing, and now they were grown-ups and they wanted music that fit their grown-up lives, which oriented around relationships and love and sex. By 2000, the tiny garage scene had grown into a national phenomenon. Fueled by chart-topping remixes of American R&B and the homegrown talent of singers like Daniel Bedingfield and Craig David, Garage also captured the airwaves, spawning dozens of new stations and flipping many of the former jungle pirates to the new sound. Over time, Garage continued to evolve. Known as two-step, a slower, more rhythmically driving style allowed for the re-emergence of the Caribbean influences that had originally entered rave through jungle. Producers began to use a heavy churning bass tone, while MCs emerged as a central part of the scene. Let's hear one of these two-step garage tracks. This is Zed Bias with his hit Neighborhood. Listen to how its R&B vocals and skippy drums are fused with MC toasting and a massive bass riff. And folks, if you're listening at home, turn up the low end. You won't regret it. I feel good, good, good. I feel good, yes, wonderful, good. Anytime I come in on the dance, I feel listen to the man. producer Zed Bias. By the early 2000s, the garage scene, like Jungle before it, had begun to splinter under the weight of its own success. Tired of the sweet sounds dominating the charts, the music's leading edge returned to the underground, creating a variety of darker, more street-conscious styles. 
The first sign of this new direction were the garage crews, rapping in distinctive slang about the ins and outs of everyday life. Groups like the Heartless Crew, the So Solid Crew and Pay As You Go Cartel injected a powerful new voice into the British charts. Crews marked a subtle but important shift as lyrical content began to rival dance floor appeal. It's sort of a metaphor, but the way I think of it is the MCs are gathering force. They're looking to displace the DJ and the producer, so they gang up. That's an exciting period because suddenly the whole axis of the music seems to flip and now the people who were sort of ancillary to it, now they're running things, now they're in charge. Let's hear a track from Soul Solid Crew, perhaps the most influential of these groups. This is their hit single, 21 Seconds. That was So Solid Crew with their song 21 Seconds. To hear more Garage Classics and to read the complete interview with Carl Tuffinough Brown, visit Afropop.org. I'm Georges Collinet, and you're listening to Afropop Worldwide from PRI, Public Radio International. As MCs took center stage, content that was previously hidden in wordless dance music began to be asserted lyrically. Much like Jungle, this later period of Garage put the black British experience front and center, in terms all could understand. It's 2015, and in a packed basement in the hip Shoreditch neighborhood of London, veteran MC DWE and Footsie of legendary grime group the Newham Generals are playing to a screaming crowd of fans. Spare and threatening, grime emerged out of South and East London in the early 2000s, embracing increasingly cheap access to recording equipment. Producers pushed dying pieces to their limits, reducing the bounce of garage to a bare minimum, 
and forging a raw, futuristic style that was all buzzing synthesizers and clacking drums. Grimes' abstract beats provide the beds for thrilling vocal performances that combine live improvisation with carefully prepared rhymes. If it's me your mother, you get a scornish like saga. Keep fighting, that's what I'm bad at. My thing's working perfect. Grime is often described as the UK version of rap. But really, it belongs to the lineage of the UK dance music we've been tracing so far. Here is UK journalist Dan Hancocks. I mean, I think what situates grime in a tradition of Afro-Caribbean and British kind of music as opposed to in the US hip-hop tradition is the fact that for a grime MC, they will have a set of lyrics that they've written and they will apply that to whatever beat is being played. That's the culture in which grime MCs come through on pirate radio, in raves as well. It's just responding to a DJ and making their lyrics ride whatever is playing. Grime relies heavily on pre-recorded tracks, and yet it is fundamentally a live performance genre. MCs rap while DJs spin records, but there is no fixed relationship between any specific beat or any specific verse. The idea of writing songs is a separate pursuit. Everyone knows that who is a grime practitioner, and they just say, well, we don't make hip-hop, we write bars that go over rhythms. We are not writing songs. We're not making tracks for mixtapes or for albums. This is a uniquely UK thing that comes through like an Afro-Caribbean lineage and it's much closer to dance or much closer to Jamaican music than it is to American. In order to hone their skills, DJs and MCs rely on practice hours and less time spent performing live sets on pirate radio. To find out more, producer Sam Becker traveled to the far west of London to visit Flex FM, a still active pirate station. His guide was Grand Mixer, one of London's top grime DJs. Yeah, yeah. But like radio stations used to be in the inner city, like pirate radio used to literally be on top of tower blocks. Uh-huh. After walking past blocks, semi-industrial offices and parking lots, we finally arrive at a nondescript grey building next to a rehearsal studio that's seemingly occupied by a second-rate Coldplay cover band. If I had to guess, I probably would have said that this building housed, I don't know, the UK's third largest importer of drain pipes, or a company that sold a particularly beige form of vinyl siding. It has that vibe. Grand Mixer buzzes us in, and we walk past the double glass doors into the studio itself, which is just tremendously loud. He says hi to the DJs finishing up their slot and quickly starts his set, diving into the fast-paced mixing for which he's become famous. After about an hour, Grand Mixer throws on a tune and asks me to hold the studio door. He runs outside and returns, joined by three teenage MCs from the square, an up-and-coming grime crew. Once they finished their set, we all went outside and I got to speak with the MCs about their technique. 
Yeah, my name's Streamer, S-T-R-E-E-M-A. I'm a Grime MC, 18 years old, coming from Lewisham, and I'm in a crew called The Square. I asked Streamer how he wrote his lyrics and how he figured out which ones to use when he was MCing. Obviously, you write bars in like 8s, 16s, and 32s. With 8s, you just, they're more repeated, like you say them, then say them again. Beef, cuz, you don't wanna run out with me, cuz, all of my the rule G's, cuz, we be coming with a big heat, cuz, and, and, and beef, cuz, you don't wanna run out with me, cuz, all of my the rule G's, cuz, and we be coming with a big heat, cuz, and, yeah, that's a quick eight there, innit? Streamer explains that these eight bar rhymes are all about riding the music. They're catchphrases, meant to bring down the room and get the DJ to reload the track. On the other hand, 16 bar phrases are more about their lyrical content. They're about showing off what an MC has to say. I got fucked and I let him out on a beat. You chat about big, but you're never gonna be. Bigger than my team, you're a little bean. Living in a place full of nitties and the silly fiends. But I wanna make more than a bit of peas. Trying to generate cheese like Italy. Billy Zoot, make sure that it's hitting me so high. Feel like I'm having an epiphany. Won't ever see me with a sick like Dorothy. Let a man violate, then he's gonna bleed. Don't chat about mash, you never squeeze. I respect anyone for honesty. Obviously, not everybody holds a machine. Ain't one of them guys guessing on a beat. Won't see me boasting about chopping on the street. That's a waste man thing and I'm not a neek. The choices an MC makes within a set are incredibly complex. They rely on split-second timing and an intuitive connection with the DJ. In my mind, I already know what I'm going to do, but because Power Radio is unexpected, like, things will happen. Like, you have to be on point, you have to, like, because there could be a hype beat coming in and you could be spraying a 32 and not know what A to spray or not even have an A to spray. So it's not really going to sound sick. The person listening is going to think, like, cool, this beat coming in is gassed. This beat is like a hype tune. I want to hear somebody doing madness on this. So if you're on your own at the set, it will be good to draw for your eight. Or unless the bar's already going in, like... And you just kind of have to write it out. Yeah. Sometimes it's better to do that, to get into the beat, to then drop the eight. Because it doesn't always work instantly as the beat comes in. Grand Mixer tells me that radio sessions like this are the best way for young grime musicians to gain a real knowledge of emceeing. In doing so, they're also creating a powerful outlet for their identity. Young people in London, and I'll say this straight, young black people or young black boys from the estate, when we go to express our voice or when we go to express music, we don't go pick up a cello, we go buy decks or you become an MC or you produce. It's our entry into music. If the story of grime is to start anywhere, it makes sense to start it with Wiley and Dizzy Rascal, who we just heard sparring on a pirate radio set from 2002. The undisputed godfather of the grime scene, Wiley began his career emceeing on jungle stations before forming the pay-as-you-go cartel, a seminal group that helped bridge the gap between garage and crime. Astoundingly productive, he spent the early 2000s churning out tracks in his self-created esky beat, selling thousands of frigid synth and drum workouts with names like Eskimo, Iceman and Igloo. He worked overtime to nurture an entire generation of younger MCs, collecting future stars like Skepta, Tinchy Strider, Jammer, and Dizzy Rascal in the constantly changing lineup of his Roll Deep crew. Let's hear What Do You Call It, a track from 2004. 
It's both a humorous riff on the confusion of fans and journalists about the newest London style and a compelling expression of its identity. I don't care about garage. Sons of this, it don't sound like garage. Who told you that I made garage? Willie Cat's got his own sound, it's not garage. Make it in the studio and not in the garage. Here in London, there's a sound called garage. But this is my sound, it sure ain't garage. I heard they don't like me in garage because I use their scene to make my own sound. The Eskimo sound is mine, recognize it's mine. You can't claim what's mine, it's mine. It's time to bait you up, I don't hate you, but some of you have got a problem. I put you out of business, why is that a problem? What's your problem? What the heck, my name is problem, remember? What you call it? Garage? What you call it? Garage? What you call it? Urban? What you call it? Urban? What you call it? Two-step? What you call it? Two-step? What you call it? Tell us what you call it then. Why'd you think that I'm stupid? I got brains, I can never be stupid. You can never use my name for make your brains jam. I won't turn up or stay at home with a girl and jam. You can't threaten me with no bad man talk. I'm not scared. Sorry man, but I've been so much now I don't give a monkey. Swing from tree to tree just like monkeys. Who influenced me to be funky? If Wiley's entrepreneurial grind reflects the self-sufficient underground that kept grind buzzing, Dizzy Rascal, his most famous protégé, represents the genre's poetic peak. Yeah, I'm just sitting here, I ain't saying much, I just think. And my eyes don't move, left or right, they just think. I think too deep and I think too long. Plus I think I'm getting weak, cause my thoughts are too strong. I'm just sitting here, I ain't saying much, I just gaze. I'm looking into space while my CD's make Seeing Here is one of my absolute favourite tracks on the album. It's so bleak and sparse and it's a tune which captures the kind of alienation and sort of solipsism of, of being a 16-year-old, basically. But also in this context of a hopelessness. There's an acronym, NEAT, not in education, employment or training, which is used as a shorthand in the UK sometimes for people who are, have dropped out of the system. London to this day remains an incredibly wealthy city with an astonishing number of people below the poverty line in it at the same time. That kind of bleakness that comes through in, in Dizzy's lyrics, but you know, even I think in the sonics as well, even in the beats. That was Dan Hancock's journalist and author of Stand Up Tall, Dizzy Rascal and the Birth of Grime. To Dan, Dizzy's music manages to reflect the specific conditions of London while also speaking to a broader experience. It is an uneasy listen, but it's completely addictive at the same time. And his lyrics are just on a completely different plane. Like, you know, here's a guy who's just encapsulated all of the pain and misanthropy and paranoia of being a teenager, to be quite honest. And yet, you know, it says a lot of deep things about uh, about the way that London's like more marginalized communities, particularly young people living on council estates, um, have been left behind. While jungle and garage represented a way of life through sound, grime added remarkable lyrical content. The street stories, fantasies, dirty jokes, sadness, and adolescent bluster of a generation of black British teenagers. The storytelling kind of tendency in grime is a strong one, but it's one that really comes through in this, almost this need to like, to issue dispatches from the front line of what it's like growing up surrounded by petty crime and like gang culture and, or just poverty in a more humdrum but like much more profound sense. Crime is the rolling news <laughs> for like a mostly ignored and like underrepresented segment of British society. 
Following the rapturous reception of DZ Rascal's Boy in the Corner, Grimes' future seemed assured. Yet somehow, things never worked out. Some of the trouble came from difficulties with record labels, which failed to adequately promote the grime artists they signed, tying up promising albums for years. In addition, the scene was threatened by changing infrastructure. Born in the era of record stores and vinyl sales, many struggled to adjust to digital downloads. Dan argues that the real problem went far deeper. There was a sense among promoters, but also among the police, that there were potential dangers to having grime exist as a live music form. It's going to attract lots of young black kids, basically. And if that happens, then there's going to be trouble. The police started using something called Form 696. It was a risk assessment form, is how it was phrased. But there was very clear language on it which kind of hinted that the police were basically looking to find out if a particular promotion that was planned was going to attract uh, ethnic minorities. This was actually listed on the form, like, what kind of music do you think is going to be on at this at your night? E.g. grime, R&B, reggae. It was basically just like a list of black music styles. To Grand Mixer, grime suffered from racism, plain and simple. He believed that by taking away its music, London's authorities tried to silence an entire community. Even now, there's no event for young urban kids to go to. It doesn't exist. This is why grime people still look up to it in such kind of way, in a nostalgic kind of way. It was the last thing that we was allowed to do. When grime was big and it was like selling out big clubs in London and artists are actually making grands independently from this new music, they shut it down. They shut it down. Still, the news is not all bad. In recent years, some of Grimes' original stars have made a comeback. Still independent, still proudly representing its community, this Grime revival tampers the energy of youth with the knowledge gained from a decade in the wilderness. Cause it shut down, that's not me and it shut down. Went to the show sitting in the front row in a black tracksuit and it shut down. While grime was making its way from the underground to the mainstream and back again, a style called dubstep was slowly building up momentum, creating the foundations for an entirely new scene. the musicians who would become pivotal to dubstep gathered as clerks and customers at Big Apple Records, a shop and label in Croydon, in the far south of London. We spoke with John Kennedy, the owner and operator of Big Apple. Initially we started as a, a house and a techno shop, which also sold drum and bass. And as years went on, trends changed, and we noticed an interest in garage music, in UK garage music in about the mid to late 90s and from that developed different strands of garage music um, some sweets R&B laced two-step beats others very influenced by jungle and drum and bass and had more darker sort of B lines we were drawn to these sorts of beats beats music and we were trying to find more music that was similar to it Tired of pop garage John began to search and stock a vein of dark bass heavy tracks 
not yet anything resembling a genre, when taken together, these tracks held the seeds of something new. It wasn't this at that point. There was grime sort of music, there was breakbeat, and there was also an, an early thing of something else. one of Dubstep's earliest DJs, clerked in the shop. The start of Dubstep, Ground Zero, is at Apple Party 2000, Christmas Party 2000. Hatcher played and he blew everyone away. But up until that point, you were, you were having DJs play sets and you hear one or two records of this style, but it wouldn't be a whole set of it, it would just be the odd one. So Hatcher basically put a set together, an hour and a half, two hours, just of this sort of music. And it was the first time I think a lot of people in that crowd had seen that, yeah, this works, you know, you don't have to have a bit of everything, we can just have this music that we like. According to John, Hatcher's musical drive led him to banga and scream, teenage producers who had become shop regulars. These younger kids that were making records, he was encouraging them. They were coming in, they were experimenting, making music with all they could afford, which was Music 2000 or Fruity Loops. And, you know, they improved rapidly because Hatch was giving feedback. You know, you don't want to put that, you want some more bongos, you want some more Indian sounds. And they were doing it. At that point in their careers, they just wanted Hatch to play their music. That would have been enough for them. To Simon Reynolds, the essence of dubstep lies in its beat. You start to get this beat, this sort of lurching beat. It's quite slow and quite sort of ominous. And that's when it sort of stops being just a kind of minimal, stripped down house garage. It has a whole different rhythmic feel. It's almost like a kind of disabled skank in some ways. Like it's just lurching, kind of like one leg is limping kind of thing. I always think of like the beat's been wounded in some way. While Big Apple nurtured the developing dubstep scene, what took it to the next level was forward a club night that brought together bass-focused DJs from across London. We spoke to Crazy D, a dubstep MC, present since the start. There was no MCs, just music. And the DJs that I was playing there was actually making music just to play at this party. You'd never hear it again. I was like, are you serious? I can't, uh, I can't grasp this. Forward attracted only a handful of fans, but the experience was electric. It was almost like 12 people in a room, but what would happen every time that they put one on, you'd bring back more people. It was a slow builder, but definitely uh, you could see it was building. Even just the anticipation. People was going out to proper garage raves then who didn't have the same anticipation because Forward was a whole new kettle of fish, mate. Harnessing a low-end knowledge generated by a decade of dance music while avoiding direct reference to black British culture, the dubstep sound was new, heavy, and profoundly transportable. Let's hear Midnight Request Line by Scream. By 
2005, dubstep had gained France in high places, critically praised by journalists like legendary BBC radio host John Peel. It also began to develop a following overseas. By 2006, dubstep had gone global. By 2008, it was an absolute phenomenon as DJs across the world jumped onto the increasingly intense sound. In the process, dubstep lost some of its local identity. Though born in London, it no longer quite belongs there. In the years since dubstep exploded out of Croydon, the sounds of black British dance music have become fragmented. Genres come and go, but nothing has emerged to redefine the scene the way that grime, dubstep, garage, or jungle once did. The internet is one culprit. Another is the financial austerity measures that have racked Britain for much of the last decade. But even if things remain scattered, the sense of cultural possibility generated by dance music, the way that the right sound can express a new identity, has been embedded deep in the heart of London. And while the music and the means to distribute it may have changed drastically since the early 1990s, the creative power of the community behind it remains undiminished. How much love we felt when people bringing in and starting really felt part. Part. It, it was just crazy. It was absolutely crazy. Funding for Afropop Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Humanities, the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art, and PRI, Public Radio International affiliate stations around the U.S. And thank you for supporting your public radio station. You can also find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at AfropopWW. My Afropop partner is Sean Barlow. Sean produces our program for World Music Productions. Research and production for this program by Sam Becker. Our chief audio engineer and co-producer is Michael Jones. Additional engineering by Craig Hartman and Stephanie Lebeau. Banning Air and C.C. Smith edit our website, afropop.org. Our director of operations is Ben Richmond. And I'm Georges Collinet. Public Radio International.